Well, so. This afternoon, of course, we'll continue with the first of the four immeasurables, loving-kindness. If we went back to one of the most ancient kind of liturgies or series of phrases uh, for this meditation, we can go back to the Vasudhimaga once again, the Path of Purification by Buddha Gosa. And in the translation I've seen, or maybe with a small variation, it's fourfold. And so the words are, may, whoever it may be, may you, may you be free of animosity or ill will, which is diametrically opposed to loving kindness. May you be free of affliction, as in physical affliction, mental affliction. May you be free of anxiety, as in fear of physical or mental affliction. And then finally, may you be well and happy. Just those four. Uh, a number of people come up, have come up with variations on those themes, and I think they're all fine. They're, it's like counting the breaths. There's no one technique, uh, one magic formula that's going to be you know, better than all the others. But this is a classic one based upon centuries of meditation in the Theravada tradition. And as I was reflecting upon this, it, it occurred to me that there may be something of a parallel between these four immeasurables and the six perfections. The six perfections being the framework of the Mahayana way of life, Bodhisattva way of life. And these are generosity, ethics, patience, enthusiasm, meditation, and wisdom. And without going into any kind of explanation of them, just this one point that in the classic teachings, as in the Avisamalankara, or ornament for clear, clear realization, that all six are, are included in each one. So in generosity, there's also ethics, patience, and so forth and so on. And so you have 36 then. Six times six, because all six are included in each one. So it shows the richness, that it shows that the wisdom is suffusing the method, the method is suffusing wisdom, they're all suffusing each other. And in a similar fashion, if we should reflect upon these phrases, may we all be free, this is the way I like to phrase it, may we all, because that's all sentient beings, but it has a little bit more of a human quality to it, or how do you sentient quality to it? I don't know. May we all. It kind of, it feels nice. It feels like, oh, you mean real? <laughs> uh, it's not quite so, how do you say? Budotak, as just English. So, may we all be free of animosity or ill will, free of affliction, free of anxiety. Well, these are exactly the type of phrases or aspirations that are characteristic of which of the four measurables? May you be free of, may you be free of animosity. Compassion, yeah, compassion. Really, it's, it's about compassion. It's, it has the negative valence to it that is, may you be free of suffering, free of so forth and so on. And so that goes for all three of them. Animosity, may you be free of affliction, free of anxiety. So compassion is woven right into. And of course, if a person is to be truly well and happy, how are you going to do that if you're filled with animosity and your body and mind are afflicted and you're also anxious? That's going to be a tough, a tough one, right? And so loving compassion is built into the cultivation of loving kindness. But now imagine as you're cultivating this and then you open your eyes and you see that someone for whom you've been directing your aspirations, your yearnings of loving kindness, you see them smiling. What do you feel? Empathetic joy. You see, oh, somebody, hey, somebody's getting some happiness here. Good, good, oh, <laughs> right? So there's mudita. And of course, if this loving kindness, if this is ever to flower in such a way that it is truly immeasurable loving kindness, or a true divine abiding, a divine abode, a divine state of loving-kindness, then of course it's got to have equanimity. If, it's not, if equanimity is not built in, in other words, in Christian terminology, if it's not unconditional, because they're interchangeable, right? 
if it's not unconditional, then it's not boundless. Because there's no, I, I can't, no loving kindness for these people or for this species or for that person and what have you. Then the job isn't done yet. So, so for loving kindness, then I think without any further, you know, real expansion, but I think you can fill in the blank spots. And that is as you cultivate compassion, explicitly wishing may we be free of suffering and the causes of suffering and you imagine people finding that now something I found very interesting in this regard is that it's not that these categories are not absolute it's not absolute there's no inherently existent suffering no inherently existent neutrality or uh, even feeling equanimity it's not inherent and there's nothing inherent about pleasure either I was as one of the most poignant instances of that that I can imagine was Pallengatso, in Pallengatso. He was, he was, was I, as far as I know, he's still alive. Um, but he was the monk who was in Chinese concentration camps for 33 years. Finally was released, escaped, and I had the, the great privilege of translating for him a few times. Um, but I try to imagine, he didn't say this in so many words, but I think it just must be true. He's been in concentration camps from pretty much his whole adult life. Finally he's released. But the, the, the concentration camp periods were really just hell on earth. It was, it was torture, it was starvation, it was heavy work, it was suicidal thoughts, it was, you know, it was a concentration camp. What do we expect? So we can imagine that would be fairly, that would be immense suffering. But even within that, he said, sometimes it slacked off a little bit. Sometimes I was just made to go off and work, and they didn't torture me on a regular basis. Sometimes we had a bit more food. So you can imagine within the concentration camp, oh, I got some food today. Today I just got to work and I didn't get tortured. Boy, that was a good day. So I've heard of your good days and your bad days, right? Only if you've had good days and bad days. He had good days and bad days too. All of his were in a concentration camp. And then, but really, what really got to me is the day that he was released, the day he was released, when he stepped out into the sunshine, and it was like I just stepped out into the sunshine. I came from my room, the wish and shadow, and I stepped out into the sunshine. So what I did was essentially the same as what he did. He stepped out into the sunshine. Do you think he's experiencing equanimity? Don't think so. That is just even feeling, oh, yeah, sun, yeah, yeah, sun. I don't think so. I think, oh, the heart bursting with, I'm free, I'm free. And so all of this is relative. All of it is relative. And so as we cultivate compassion and we ima imagine people, sentient beings of any kind, emerging from some level of suffering where that's no longer on the back, it's no longer the burden, you imagine, it's, it's, we don't have to be too clever here, that in that relief there's, oh, that kind of like, oh, that's good. There's pleasure in that. So it's all relative, yeah? It's all relative. So as we cultivate compassion, of course, loving kindness is built in. When we see people, or we even imagine people, finding relief from the suffering they're experiencing of any kind. And we see, ah, they're getting a break. There's a little bit less. Oh, then how do we respond? Of course, empathetic joy, equanimity the same. And I think I won't say anything more. For the mudita, for empathetic joy, of clearly the loving kindness and compassion will be built in. And likewise, for equanimity, the crown jewel of all of them, all three, all of the other three will be built in. Yeah? So a final point, at least one person mentioned that uh, he didn't really feel he had much of a knack for, or native ability, for visualization. Like all this business of visualizing orb of light and at the heart, and visualizing light going out, and visualizing darkness coming in, and dissolving into the heart, and so forth. Um, 
my short response to that would be, don't worry, it's not a big deal. Not a big deal at all. It's just technique. What this is really about is opening the heart and developing this greater, greater sense of caring for others. That's what it's really about. And so if the visualization helps with that, and you find, you, you find it, you resonate with it, you thought, yeah, I like this part, then by all means do it. But it's not crucial. It's not indispensable. It's certainly Buddha Gosa never taught. Orb of light at your heart, light going out. No, that's Tonglen practice. So, of course, I was incorporating Tonglen practice into Buddha Gosa's teachings. I don't think he'd mind. But he taught it the way he taught it, straight Theravada. And there have been many, many Theravada practitioners who have actually, and in fact, I think Deepa Mao might be a good example, of a person, straight Theravada. She was a true blue Theravadan, as far as I can tell. Everything she taught, she practiced straight Theravada. And yet, from the reports I've read, I never had the good fortune, like Malcolm, to meet her. But she just seemed to embody this just boundless, that is, without barrier. That was my sense of it. Malcolm is nodding. No barrier. Like, oh, here are my friends. Oh, and who are you? And just none of that. It was just like this light. Michelle spoke of this, of when you enter into the awareness of awareness, like being inside a light bulb, right? And it's just luminous, but you are the luminosity. Now consider the luminosity is permeated by ambrosia, which I know you've had some experience of also. So now the light shining out is not just an incandescence, just a sheer luminosity, but there's a sweetness in it altogether. So maybe final point. I have lots of final points, you might have noticed. <laughs> I'm, miss me, I'm good at final points. <laughs> I like them so, many, so much, I have them many times. <laughs> but this, there was something very touching in one of the Mind and Life conferences. I mean, many, of course, but here's just one instance. And it, when, it, when it was this Holiness Dalai Lama, uh, was speaking, we were talking about mot uh, motivations, what moves us, what, what are our desires. I can't remember whether it was in the, two, the year 2001 on destructive emotions, but my memory is quite clear of what he said, although I don't remember the whole context for it. But the issue is, what, are, what is our basic instinct? You know, we have these terms out of evolution, out of Freudian psychiatry, and so forth and so on. What are our, our most primitive drives? Is it sex? Is it procreation? Survival? Is it death wish? Is it table tennis? You know, what is the primary drive for which all the other ones are derivative? And His Holiness, I've I, I never read this anywhere, and my sense was His Holiness was just speaking straight out of experience. Like when Emiliana asked, where does this creativity come in? You know, I, I've not read that anywhere, but from my experience, do this practice a lot, it opens up whatever reservoirs of creativity there are, deep or shallow, but it does open them up. That's just my experience. Maybe I'm unique, but I very much doubt that. I had a sense His Holiness was speaking in that way, just boom, right, heart to heart. And he said, what is the, primer, the primary, the most fundamental, there's a good word, impulse or movement? <sighs> Caring. The, the word is tsewa, tsewa, tsewa in Tibetan. And it can be translated as kindness or compassion, but there's another word, nyingje, as a compassion. And kaden is kindness, and, and, and jamba is loving kindness. But tsewa, it really struck me as I was listening to him talk about this, as being this is the most fundamental. Why do we do anything at all? Why don't we just sit and die? Why don't we just sit back and starve to death? Why do we even move? You know, samsara is suffering. I don't want to play. <laughs> I just want out. You know? And if I'm reborn, I'm going to do this again. <laughs> That's going to be my, my method from now on. 
just, I don't want to play, you know, because I don't care anymore. And you can't. You can't not care. You can't not care. And so as he used this word, I thought, ah, I think we found the mother, or the, what should we say, the prime that derives into, for which love and kindness and compassion are derivative. It is caring. It is caring. You know, that's fundamental. And if I look over at Tzepel and I wish, oh, might you find happiness, then the caring turns to the positive side, the world of potential. Might you find happiness like you've never dreamed before? Might your heart's desire be re realized? Might you, might you, and I'm looking into that world of possibility, and may it be so for you. And so there's, it's vectoring off to the left, off to the positive. But if I, if I should see that you're suffering, maybe the problem in the neck or something, maybe a little bit pain there, some discomfort, oh, may you be free of that. Might you get a better pillow? Who could help you out there? And so it's now going to the negative valence. May you be free of this, free of this. And so it's going this way, it's going that way. But why, but, and here's the question, why would I care? You're not me. Why would I care whether you find happiness, whether you're free of suffering? Why would I care? Well, because I care. The caring, right? That's the fundamental. That's my sense of it. And it may manifest as loving kindness, manifest as compassion, but caring is there. And so, of course, some people become sociopathic. The mind becomes so deluded that sociopathy comes in. They really don't care about anybody else at all, maybe, or even maybe they want to harm. There was another tragic killing. It's it just something, some like same strange mental virus going around China right now. Very sad. Very sad. Again, school children under six being hacked. And it's just like a strange, like a, like a new flu. But it's mental. And nobody understands it. It's terribly tragic. So there are these aberrations of just something terribly has gone wrong. But even there, even there, let's take that as one of the most tragic examples. At least with the Nazis, they had some kind of an agenda. They had some rationale. These people are inferior. We have to kill them. Okay, well, there's a deluded notion, but I understand it. But killing children? That's when, that's when it just got to me the other day. Like, I just, I just don't get a handle on that at all. If you want to kill somebody, well, find somebody really nasty kill. Kill yourself. But why would you? <laughs> that I understand, you know. But killing, I, don't, I, I simply don't get it at all. Uh, little children, I, I just, my mind just goes, and then it just, it just stops. I don't, I don't know. Hmm. But even there, even in such intense delusion, there's some impulse of caring. And one of the speculations, and it's just that, but from the Chinese side, is, or somebody, you know, Chinese experts, is just a rage and a frustration against social inequity. Social inequity. That's one possibility. Who knows? Who knows? but just a frustration, a rage that some people have so much and I have so little and there's not anything I can do about it and I'm impotent, I can't do anything at all. Well, I can do something, I can find somebody smaller than me and I can kill them. I don't know, I don't know. But coming back to the brighter, the brighter point is caring is essential. And so now what we're doing in these four measurables is even such a psych and such person has to be a psychopath. I mean, what else? There's no explanation. Terribly, seriously deranged. Then I say, okay, it's a mental disorder, and I'm not a psychiatrist. I don't understand all mental, but it's got to be one of those. That I would say, and I say, okay, that's for professional psychiatrists to understand, because I can't fathom it. But in all of these cases, there is caring. There's caring for someone, even if it's just venting frustration. This is the way I can get that energy out. 
I think in gang warfare or sometimes just malicious, mindless acts of terrorism or hostility and rage. It's just this frustration that balls up and just like one needed to pee or needing to go to the bathroom, just needing to go, oh, just need to get it out and it comes out in violence. But it's kind of, I imagine, I don't think I've ever done this, I don't know if I've ever done this, not in my memory, but just venting violence just for the release of it. That too is an expression of caring. Obviously malevolent, it goes without saying, but even that is an expression of caring. What these four measurables do is the caring, especially in such tragic cases as the one I've mentioned, the caring is all balled up into this autonomous, separate self. This will give me some relief, because I can't stand it. Whatever it is, I can't stand it. And this will give me some reliefs. But the caring stops at the skin. Because obviously no, no caring for the children, their parents, their loved ones, their teachers, society as a whole. There's clearly no caring there. The border came down like a lead wall, right? And so on occasion some of us may come into this tiny cubbyhole of our own individuated self as an autonomous, independent, and I only care about me. Usually not in such violent ways, but sometimes it may get so small. And all of these practices then are designed to break down the barriers. The barrier between you and the next person over, your mother, your spouse, your children, your friends, that, okay, that barrier's broken down. And now break down another one, and break down another one, and break down another one, until you're reaching out and embracing the Ku Klux Klan and the, and the Gestapo and the SS and the people who are running concentration camps and so forth, and it just doesn't stop. All the barriers. It's just like the tsunami just breaks down everything until the loving kindness is without barrier. And that means the caring, the impulse of caring, just now has no borders. I think that's what this practice is about. So, let's do it, but now with many few, much fewer words. Let's do the practice. as an expression of loving-kindness for ourselves that settle the body in its natural state and the respiration in its natural rhythm. Again, in the same spirit of kindness and gentleness, with a nurturing quality for yourself, 
Settle your mind with the qualities of ease, stillness in the present moment, and its own natural clarity, as for a little while you practice mindfulness of breathing in any way you wish. And then, like a skilled craftsman, pick up the tools of your mind, your faculty for discerning thought, your imagination, memory, intelligence. And for a little while, following the classic instructions of Buddha Gosa, reflect upon the consequences for oneself and others of allowing one's own mind to be dominated by animosity, malevolence, ill will. What's it feel like? How does it affect the mind and the body? How does it influence the speech and physical behavior? How does it influence others? You may reflect upon certain times in the past when your mind has been influenced or dominated by this mental affliction. Either in your own mind stream or elsewhere, in the minds of others, it's the same. It's like a virus, it is an affliction. What are its consequences? 
then drawing from your own experience, but also expanding your awareness to the experience of others. Reflect upon the consequences of loving-kindness, upon one's own mind, one's speech, one's physical behavior, and upon others. Then with this awareness in the background, let's now meditatively cultivate loving-kindness, beginning for ourselves in the center of the mandala, the center of our own world, envisioning our own flourishing, our own genuine happiness, with each out-breath arousing the yearning that we may, may indeed be truly well and happy. each out-breath, you may simply mentally utter the phrase, may I be well and happy, or more elaborate if you wish. then following other classic teachings within the Theravada tradition. Like the waves from a stone thrown into a still pool of water, rippling out in ever-widening circles. With each out-breath, arouse the yearning. May we all be well and happy. Initially embracing within this sphere of loving-kindness the person in front of you, to your left, to the right and behind. Each one like yourself. 
and then gradually from breath to breath, expanding the sphere of awareness, of loving-kindness, out in all directions, to the east and west, north and south, above and below. May we all be well and happy. May those who are experiencing the challenges of old age, may they be well and happy and age gracefully.
May those who are facing the challenges of sickness and of injury May they receive the medical care they need. May their health be restored. And may they be well and happy. May those who are facing the challenges of dying die gracefully, with ease and comfort, and may they be well and happy.
With each out-breath, imagine everyone around you finding and cultivating the causes for their own flourishing. And imagine each one finding the happiness they seek. If anyone comes to mind for whom you feel the flow is impeded, there's a blockage, difficult to truly aspire for this person's well-being, consider the sources of the blockage, not in the other person's behavior, but in your own heart, and arouse the yearning in sequence May you, like myself, be free of animosity, of ill will, of malevolence. May you, like myself, be free of affliction, physical and mental but also the inner causes of affliction, mental afflictions. May you, like myself, may you be free. So much of the evil in the world stems from fear. And in seeking to protect ourselves from danger, we invite in suffering. May we all be free of anxiety, free of fear. When these barriers are down, and arouse the yearning, may we all be free, and may we all be well and happy. 
and imagine it to be so. Release all appearances. Let your awareness effortlessly come to rest in its own place, illuminating its own nature. bring this session to a close. Today there, there were no written questions, as you might have noticed. 
And we're halfway through. Does that mean we're finished with questions? <laughs> Any, or there could be insights, experiences you'd like to share. Yes, Sebella. A microphone coming. I'm just wondering, in awareness with um, awareness of awareness, um, in the little alcove in my room, it, it's um, a bit hard to get a real spaciousness. Oh, with yeah. the, it's much easier in the hall here. Mm -hmm. um, even though it's not a visual object, and just trying to make the awareness more broad and spacious beyond the walls, it's um, just because it's visual, it seems to be a bit harder. D does that matter? On another hand, I thought maybe it doesn't matter as long as you've got something. Just hang on to that. Yeah. Oh, you're not practicing awareness of awareness. <laughs> you're practicing awareness of space. And that's also a legitimate practice. It's one of the ten kasinas, according to the Buddha's account. When practicing awareness of awareness, we're not even attending to the space. Big, small, red, white, blue, purple, well, black, whatever. We're not attending. Not attending. It doesn't, it's not meant to be anything. Yeah, it's not meant to be anything. As you're simply attending to it, resting your awareness in the awareness, you may spontaneously, like somebody giving you a, an unexpected present, turn out to be spacious. But you don't try to make it spacious, because then what are you dealing with? You're dealing with a concept of what you think your awareness is, and trying to make it a spacious concept. Which is very normal, it's very normal. But this is a matter of peeling away the layers of the onion, and the layers this time are not of self-grasping, they, they, are, they are the layers of appearances. And so we did this by steps. And so just to refresh memory, how we did the ending phases of settling the mind, which is where we'll go tomorrow. Remember attending to the foreground, the players on the stage. Okay, got it. They're objects, got it. And then we attend to the background. Well, the background, of course, is not just flat like a screen or, or just a stage that maybe is 20 or 30 feet deep. The background is the space of the mind, which is in front of you, behind you, above and below, and all to the sides. That's the background. And so, where is the space of the mind? Wherever mental events arise. So as you're sitting there, should you have some image arising above your head? Well, that's where the space of the mind is. The space of the mind is inside your body as well. If a, if a radiant pearl of light appears at your heart while you're doing that practice, that's where the space of the mind. So the space of the mind actually has no center, it has no periphery. And of course, it is spacious because it is, after all, space. So in that practice of settling the mind, I do that phase just to get people into the, not the habit, get familiar with what's it like to attend to the space of the mind, since, after all, the object is the space of the mind and whatever arises within it, to make sure that we still have something to attend to. We don't simply go blank or bewildered as soon as there are no events discrete events that we can focus on and recognize this and that. Even during those intervals, when there doesn't seem to be anything there, there is something there. It's called space of the mind. And so we attend to that. To that. And when I say to that, I'm emphasizing this preposition to, suggesting a vector, a direction. Where is the space of the mind? Well, it's in all directions. But it is in all directions. And therefore, I'm going out to the appearances of space. And there it is. It's spacious. By cracking, it's spacious. So that's still not awareness of awareness. 
Now, as now, where does Padmasambhava pick up on that? I mean, he's not picking up. I mean, I'm picking up on him. He, he came first. But when he gives the initial instructions on shamatha without a sign, the first thing is place your awareness in space. Concentrate. Release. Concentrate. Release. This is warming up. You're not quite doing awareness of awareness yet, but as you bring your awareness into space and then really, really honing in, really attending very closely, and then just easing off. As you attend into space, after, before very long, it's as if you're suddenly aware that there's someone else in the room. Like, th this has been studied by some people studying parapsychology, is whether that really is a fact or whether it's completely a myth. Of I had just had this feeling there was somebody in the room and lo and behold, there they were, you know? Does that occur is it, or is it just you heard them moving or whatever, you know? But that sense there's somebody else in the room, well, there we go, it's a parallel. So as you're attending to the space, then, then it dawning on you, there's something else in the room. There's something else in the space apart from just space. What's that? Consciousness. Consciousness. Yeah, it's not just space, there's consciousness of the space. And they're not the same, right? They're not simply the same. To attend to space is not to attend to consciousness any more than attending to thoughts is attending to consciousness, right? And so, again, to use Michel's metaphor, it's classic, it's ancient, but the very nature of awareness being luminosity, what is it that is illuminating space? What is it that is making space knowable? What is it that is making space appear? Consciousness. And that's there even if space itself is not appearing. Consciousness before space was, consciousness is. And so we are releasing as much as we can all appearances, even space. So let's just do it right now for just a couple of seconds. No, no shift of posture is needed. But just come right in. to not even space, but to that which illuminates space and knows space. Come right into the knowing. Now close your eyes. And open the eyes. It's homogenous all the way through. Eyes closed, eyes open. Big space, small space. It's always there. So, that said, if you find it more helpful to practice in a, in a spacious place, and some of you do, and for good reason. This is a very nice airy space. It's, it's cool because of the air conditioning. Lots and lots of windows, so there's light here as well as the space itself. If this is more conducive, by all means. Yeah. But don't mistake the image of consciousness or the image of space for the awareness itself. And as you settle into it, this I think I can guarantee, as you settle into that and you're just tasting more and more, tasting as in the direct experience, just the sheer simple, and that's the word, the utter simplicity of being aware of being aware, then it really won't matter whether you're in a coffin or you're on the top of a high peak. It won't matter, because it's the same.
And you'll find all the space you need right in the very nature of awareness itself. Because th that awareness, in fact, is indivisible from space. But in attending to it, you're not attending to that with which it is indivisible, you're attending just to that. Okay? Good. Yes, Daniel first, and then we'll go over to, to the right. This is just a, a quick uh, clarification. I think it was yesterday or two days ago that we, we were talking about awareness of awareness and you gave the example of the princess and the castle. Yes, right. Uh, so I was just wondering, when we're doing breath awareness and awareness of awareness, then the mind does uncoil itself on its own? Because sometimes I feel like I'm, wow. you know, I'm, I could be in the practice and I get a strong emotion and mm -hmm. you come for the thought. Mm -hmm. But if I'm doing awareness of awareness, you know, I just breathe out, release it, and then come back to a practice. But in a sense, I felt like I just left it there and it's going to come bite me later on during the practice. Mm -hmm. or, or maybe, you know, in another day or another week. So mm -hmm. do, do they actually just evaporate by themselves? If we're... They refers to the sense of control or? Oh, no, no. The, you know, the, when you do uh, selling the mind, you mentioned that the mind uncoils itself. Right, exactly, quite so. So the settling coil itself, even if you're not attending to it, just yeah, to be 100% clear. That's it. Yeah, the settling the mind in this natural state is like a micromanaging, uh, since you're a man, I'm going to say prince, because I don't want to be gender biased here. Uh, it's like a micromanaging prince. And that is the prince has his own duties that none of the house servants can do or should do. He's a prince. He's got his own job. But the micromanaging prince, when he says, I'd like some um, rice and dal for dinner, some really princely rice and dal for dinner, And then he goes and says, what kind of doll did you get? Where's the rice? Is this kind of rice? And micromanages all the way. Where did you get, where, where did you shop, where did you buy it from? And, and I think it's too hot, cool it off. You know, micromanaging every step. They say, well, how do you have chance to be a prince when you're micromanaging every aspect of your household, right? Well, settling the mind, of course, is not a false practice, but it is attending to everything that comes up. And as the, the emotions, thoughts, images, memories, everything comes up, you're not managing them, but you are attending. So maybe I should rephrase the analogy. It's not that he's micromanaging, but he's micro-observing. He's following everybody around in the, in the castle and watching, what's everybody doing? What's everybody doing? You know? Okay, well, if you got nothing better to do, all righty. <laughs> you know? um, and that is the practice. And it's a sublime practice. So there's, as you, you know very well, I'm not criticizing at all. But in fact, they'll do that all whether or not he's watching. Right? And so it is quite true. I think we have centuries of experience to back up what I'm saying here. That's when I feel the greatest confidence. Um, and that is the mindfulness of breathing at least 2,500 years old. In attending to just the in-outflow of the breath, then attending to the acquired sign, then comes up the counterpart sign. You're simply not attending to, you're simply releasing all the stuff that comes up. And this, to my mind, is an expression, I mean, it may not be explicit or conscious, but implicitly, It is an expression of deep trust in the essential healing capacity of your own mind to sort out all the blockages and knots and entanglements of the prana system, get so blocked up with, you know, with just a lot of unwholesome behavior and mental, mental states, trusting that that's going to sort itself out without having to get in there and start breathing in special ways. And pranayama can be very good, but instead of relying, placing your trust in a pranayama expert, and all the people go, who, who go behind him or her, here you're placing your trust in the healing capacity of your own body-mind, right? And trusting, if I just get out of the way and do this practice correctly, which has been done for more than two millennia, 
then I'm just going to trust that what needs to happen there in terms of blockages opening up, the prana starting to flow, and a number of you by now have commented this, that they start coming like this. And you put your, put your finger down to the lower abdomen, to the belly button, the sternum, and up to the heart. Say, oh, I'm finding this is happening. This is happening. And that wasn't because you're doing a visualization or I give you some special breathing technique. I didn't. It's the, en the energy starting coming to the center and coming up, coming up the center. Happens naturally. And so, for those of you not experienced, don't worry about it. You know, this will happen in the course because you can trust your body to sort itself out. So it's like there's a kind of a primal sanity or primal health there that is yearning to get out, you know, speaking metaphorically, of course. So that's for the body, but likewise for the mind. The mind, really, if we allow it to, if we get out of the way, as we do explicitly in settling the mind, then it does have this capacity to heal, to heal, to heal. One person here who has spent a lot of time studying psychology, and I think with a lot of intelligence, so everything I'm saying I say with respect, in psychology, often there's a strong impetus, but I must understand this. Why does this emotion come up? Why is this desire lingering? Why is this memory coming back? Why is that? Why is that? And there, there can be a lot of value in that. So I have nothing to criticize. But I would say that's not the only way. Sometimes it may be very important, but I would say it's not the only way. That if we can practice the settling the mind, if we can really do it, when all these old ruminations, memories, desires, emotions are coming up, if we can do it, and truly attend to it, be fully present with it, without distracting, without grasping, then watch what happens. And see whether, it, in fact, it is not the case that even without all the analysis, the top-down cogitation, figuring it out, being really smart and clever, and, aha, now I got that one, oh, I fig figured out that one, without the top-down, it can be bottom-up. And the mind will just sort itself out. Hmm. So that's what happens when you're watching. But the same thing occurs. The same thing occurs in mindfulness of breathing, one ancient practice, and the Buddha himself taught awareness of awareness. So they both go back to him. That's pretty cool. And there, in both cases, just be the good prince. Be the good prince. Practice impeccably. From breath to breath, do one full cycle of the breath and do it impeccably. Breathe out, breathe in. Ah, I'm a prince. You know? And do that and let, let, your, let your staff take care of whatever needs to be taken care of. And likewise, an awareness of awareness, equally so. So it's clearly not the case that you have to attend to every single thing that comes up. And not only do you not need to fix it yourself, you don't even need to watch it being fixed. It will be fixed. Yeah. Important question. Yeah. Over to Malcolm. This side. Just going further on the awareness of awareness, yeah. is it a process of elimination, like a process, a, pro of? a process of elimination in many respects? Like I notice that when I'm looking for awareness or saying saying what is it that is aware or what is consciousness, yeah. there's a there's a there's a, a there's a sort of a phrase that comes up, not that, not this. So it's not this, not that, and what we're left with is this, just yes, yeah. just sort of being. Uh -huh. and, and it's a matter of just resting in that. Is that, is that what one thing you're saying? Or? It is indeed. It, it is indeed. <coughs> I think of among all shamatha practices, at least those of which I'm familiar, this is the one that is most relentlessly uh, oriented on a discovery model. A discovery model. And I say it for the following reasons. And that is, as you attend, 
just to the awareness itself devoid of grasping. Just resting. No vector, no directionality to it. No awareness to, just awareness of. It stays home. In those moments, so we don't have to wait days, months, or years for this. In those moments, when you're just doing it correctly, let's do it just right now, for seconds. There's a stillness there already. <clears throat> we didn't add to it. We didn't make it. We just, we just, for a moment, for five seconds, we just lifted the veils that were obscuring the stillness that was already there. Now let's do it again. Just awareness, awareness for seconds. And in that experience, there is a wakefulness. There's a word much more in our vernacular. There's a wakefulness there. It was not simply a knowing, but a wakefulness. Like coming from a deep sleep and then turning on the light and, oh, I'm awake. In other words, kind of a brightness. And again, nothing that makes us squint. We're not speaking of luminosity as a visual impression. But wakefulness, luminosity, clarity, vividness. And that was already there. And we didn't add it. We didn't do something special to make awareness become clear, luminous, wakeful. It already was. So, this is an elaborate way of saying yes. This is a process of elimination. And what we're eliminating is all that which is obscuring the innate stillness and the innate vividness or luminosity of awareness. Now let's do it a third time, just again for a matter of seconds. And knowing that would be only for a matter of a few seconds, wasn't there a sense of ease? Wasn't, if you're doing it even remotely correctly, that was not a tightening. That was not a constriction. That was not an arousal of effort. It was just the opposite. Just the opposite. It was just... effortless. We're discovering effortlessness. We're discovering stillness. We're discovering luminosity. And how does that happen? Why didn't we just do this all along? Why are we doing anything besides this? Right? What's obscuring it? Grasping. When the restlessness comes in, we grasp onto it. We identify with it. We get stuck. When agitation comes in, well, of course it comes in with all those little fish hooks on it, grabs us, that obscures obscures the innate stillness of awareness. And likewise, when we fall into laxity, dullness, tiredness, and so forth, and we pull the blankets over our heads, then we identify with dullness. And then we feel, I feel so dull today. I feel so drowsy. My mind is so, so lax and vague. I am experiencing sloth and torpor. <laughs> I love that phrase. <laughs> sloth and torpor. It had to be an Englishman that came up with those two terms. I'm experiencing sloth and torpor. Bit of sloth and torpor, yes. And I really, I, I love this one. Pardon me, but it's just my own little quirkiness. You know, English really can be quite quirky. I mean, they're they're famous for it. And imagine a really quirky gentleman who's a Buddhist scholar having two kids and calling them sloth and torpor. 
<laughs> hey, Sloth, come over here. Let's play some football. Hey, Torpa, stand up. Torpa, stand up. Torpa, wake up. <laughs> You'd have to be very quirky to call your kids Sloth and Torpa. But in any case, when it comes on, they, they are slothful and torporful because we identify with them, right? So, long-winded way of saying it's a process of elimination. Why don't we just do this? Because it's not just too easy to eliminate. And sometimes to give, it, give us a handle, to direct our attention to something can be helpful, settling the mind. To be able to fasten the attention to something can be helpful. Mindfulness of breathing. Yeah. But sooner or later, we're going to wind up, all roads lead to awareness of awareness. You know, that is finally when you achieve shamatha and you're resting in the substrate consciousness. Well, you can't rest there very long without being aware that, hmm, there's somebody else in here. <laughs> Apart from the substrate. And that is, oh, substrate consciousness. Welcome to awareness of awareness. Can I ask about what you, what you were talking about this morning, I think it was, uh, where you said about between practices, between... Oh, quite. Uh, um, quite. About open presence, like whether you, when you're going from one place to the next and so on. But when you... In, in between yes, meditations. Between sessions, yes. Uh, you said one thing you can do, make sure you, you know, if you're walking, walk, or you can practice open presence. Can I just get clear about what you mean by open presence, is that like awareness of awareness? And there's no... Yeah, I'm, it's I'm missing the reference of the word, is that. That refers to? Open presence. Open pre oh, is open presence like? Um, aware is, a, is that the same no, as awareness, aware awareness? Well, awareness? it's like, but it's not. Is it like... Um, I had a kind of feeling like it was like a 360 degrees awareness of everything. Yes, that's right. At, at the same time as being kind of completely inside at the same time I don't know if that makes sense like just 360 degrees aware yeah and walking through that some like if I'm walking from my room to sure eating this is like just just this right is that what you mean by three yeah open presence yeah the answer is yes but I'll give some modification the short answer is yes modification is the following is it the same as awareness of awareness no If as you're walking from the, our housing complex over there, the hotel, to this meditation hall here, if you really started going to samadhi on awareness of awareness, you'd fall. <laughs> you'd hit those steps and you'd trip and you'd be spattering yourself all over the, all over the, uh, the concrete. Uh, because you will have disengaged from appearances and you won't see the steps. And then you'll fall. And you'll probably just tip right over anyway because the, the walking will be not possible. And so no, it's not the same. Uh, the awareness of awareness is leading you right into, again, the analogy is falling asleep with increasing luminosity. But to try to, to, to walk while you're falling asleep, not a good idea, right? So, in that regard, not the same. The awareness of awareness almost, as it were, goes into a vanishing point. It withdraws, it withdraws, it withdraws into itself, into a vanishing point, because it's a vanishing point because the awareness itself doesn't have any shape size, volume. It doesn't go to the size of a pea. It doesn't go to the size of a molecule. It goes to the size of an electron. An electron has no spatial dimension at all, so they say. So that's the awareness of awareness, not to be done while walking. Yeah, it could be dangerous for your health. Okay? Awareness of aware that is the open presence, open presence, of course, that can be done because one is open, as you said very well, 360 degrees. Um, 
if you've just come, especially if you've just come from awareness of awareness, it could be from any, other, any of the shamatha methods, where there's a deep stillness, a deep stillness, that's either been cultivated or discovered or both, one way or another. Uh, if you're coming out with a, with a deep stillness and you rise off your cushion, come to the door, open the door, and let's imagine it's, it's dinner time or one of the meals, and you're walking and you're sustaining that sense of such looseness, such non-grasping, you may have the appearance as if you're in a, in a uh, 3D IMAX. And that is, you're in it, and the appearances are arising, and they're arising, and they're arising, and you turn your head, and there are more appearances arising, and you turn it the other way, and there's more arising, and then you move forward, and it's just arising, and arising, and arising, and you are motionless. And the arising is seeing the appearance of a hand go out and open the door, and walking through, and the rising is you're looking at the, the displays of the food, and that's arising, and you're still motionless because all that moved were the appearances, okay? So you're attending to it all, but there is a stillness in the midst of all the appearances. And as soon as that stillness is lost, it's directly, I would say linearly, linearly correlated to the degree of grasping. The more grasping, the more sense you will have of you being in motion. Oh, there's a place over there, I need to go. Here I am. Oh yes, I'm definitely moving through absolute space. Is it like a, like a breaking up of form in some respects? Like, a, you know, how we construct, we construct the world. Like, I, I think that you're a solid person over there. I, I'm missing, it's just a bit blurry. I, Maybe it's too close, the microphone. I Maybe, think that you're a solid person. Is that better? Maybe the microphone a little bit further away. How's that? How's that? Let's see. Uh, is it like, like the world is breaking up? It's like the solidity of the world. It's like we, we walk around thinking that everything's solid, like there's a cushion over there and there's a room over there and as we're walking through the world it sort of feels very solid but what you're talking about here with open presence is that we're actually walking through consciousness like like we like we would be if we're having a lucid dream well that's exactly the analogy yeah, yeah. and so this is daytime this is daytime dream yoga that you're talking about right now it's daytime dream yoga um, or it's again to go back to classic mahayana buddhism if one is meditating on emptiness, and it, this comes in the seven point mind training and everywhere else, but in between sessions, Tunsam Gyume Kiburja, in between sessions, act as an illusory being, or in between sessions, adopt these, the dreamlike samadhi, as if you were in a lucid dream, right? And so it's attending to all the appearances and knowing the appearances are, how do you say, that they are interconnected in a vast and complex array. And that is, as I attend to the appearance of the wristwatch in front of me, it's a visual appearance. And then I see the visual appearance of a hand reaching out. And lo and behold, another very expected, not surprising type of appearance arises. And that is, as I put my two fingers on the face of the wristwatch, I'm feeling something cool, uh, cool and smooth on the glass face. And that's an appearance, right? But they're just appearances. It's appearances all the way through. But it was not by accident. There was, there was no surprise there. Oh, gosh, it's solid. And so the appearance of the wristwatch and having experiences of wristwatches in the past, all these, these, these patterns, these appearances, are profoundly interconnected by way of pratita samudpada. But viewing them as empty, 
and that is nothing there absolutely from its own side. So this is really in the realm of Vipassana, and specifically Madhyamaka Vipassana. But it can come up, it comes up. But something I would suggest, not that we don't need to contrive or to really try to push. Um, Geshe Rapton, when he taught, he taught me, I think a number of he did, a number of times, the settling the mind in its natural state. The first time back in 75, but later in 78, 79. Uh, he was speaking about what it's like for a person who spent a good deal of time doing that practice, settling the mind. What is it like in between sessions? And, there were, and this was without reference to any philosophy, belief system, Madhyamaka, Chittamatra, Abhidhamma, any of that. So just setting aside the whole prajna. We're just dealing with ethics and the samadhi category. Samadhi being subtly in the mind. He said, what's it like in between sessions? And he said, in between sessions, you simply perceive all that appears as simply being appearances to your own mind and having no existence apart from that, independent of that, absolutely independently out there. That's just how you see things. And it's when you slip into that mode that you have more of the sense of motionless in the midst of motionlessness or stillness in the midst of motion. Now, does that sound familiar? The fusion of stillness and motion? Well, this is exactly where you're going in settling the mind. The awareness is still and what's coming up. You're the falcon facing into the wind and its thoughts, emotions, images are rising and rising and rising. But because of the lack of grasping, you're not swept into the past, you're not sucked into the future. You're light, you're light like, lighter than thin air. You're light like space. And they are all in motion, arising and passing, coming and going. And your awareness is like space. You cultivate that for a few thousand hours, or maybe even less. It carries over into the in-betweens, the, the sessions in-between. Yeah. Carry this over into nighttime, and then you get yourself a lucid dream. Yeah. So, right behind you, Nick. Nick Wallingford. <clears throat> nope. You died? Okay. Of natural causes, I'm sure. What's so along the lines of awareness of awareness, yes. um, I'm really resisting the idea of having to open my eyes during this particular uh, shamatha method. Yeah, I, I, It works well for me in settling the mind to keep my eyes open because it, <laughs> I don't fall into following the uh, fantasies as much. Right. But just even when you said for us to do it for five seconds, I did it with my eyes closed, first eyes open. And it just, I have a lot better sense of what awareness is. Yeah, when I, yeah there's not much else to uh, be aware of. So, uh -huh. can you, I don't know, I, I feel like I've asked this question a lot, but I'm just not getting the answer I want because I'm resisting it, or I, I don't know. I'm just missing the last part. Just kind of wondering 
why, why do, we have, do we have to keep our eyes open? Yeah, if you don't, I'll fine you. <laughs> yeah. it'll, it'll be a stiff fine. You won't like it. <laughs> no, the answer, of course, is you don't have to. I mean, how would I enforce that? Gosh, that would be hard. <laughs> Send my, by the way, the geckos, they're my spies. <laughs> so, no, but I understand your question. I mean, why do we have to do it? Why do we have, why is it even encouraged? Why was it even suggested? Uh, is this an imperative? In other, no, so I'm, I'm just going to flesh out your question. For this practice to really flourish, to be able to take depth and really work, is this necessary? And that's what I think what you're asking. And in the chapter, I think it's the very next chapter of natural liberation. I'm pretty sure it's the very next chapter. Padmasambhava speaks of something, of a channel. It's, it's very esoteric, very esoteric. Very hard, I believe, to ascertain experientially what he's talking about. But boy, was he not a trivial man. He speaks of what is called the hollow crystal kati channel, a channel of energy. And he speaks of this as being located in the heart, the heart chakra. So its nucleus is there. Or if we think of it as like a plant, its, its taproot is here in the heart chakra. And then it comes up like a stem through the center of the torso. And then when it gets into the head, excuse me, when it gets into the head, gets up into the head, then it splits, and either it was in the text or the commentary, um, it splits like the little antlers or the little antenna of a snail. It goes like, like that, and they come right to the eyes. So two channels come right to the eyes. But they, if you trace those channels back from the, from the pupils, back, then they come back to one and, they t and then they trace right back to the heart. And he said, this is really quite a, a crucial channel and you want to keep that channel open. And you close it by closing your eyes. So keep the, t so keep, keep the light on. Keep the light on. Let the eyes be open for this practice. And then this has further repercussions much, much later on the path uh, in the Tutgel, or the direct crossing over, the culminating face of Dzogchen. So I think the reasons for the strong suggestion that the eyes be open, and then we see all these other exercises he gives, place it in space and now direct with the eyes open, direct up, right, left, down, all this business. Well, I guess he must have really meant it. So I think these are non-trivial reasons for suggesting that, and therefore if this is an ability or a skill, simply a skill, you can gradually cultivate. If you find that the awareness of awareness is a practice that just speaks to you, that you feel a strong resonance with, an affinity for, you really like to do it, because it's clearly, it's not the best for everybody. Other people will get to the same place exactly, the realization of shamatha, the substrate and content, and never do it. Most people do. This is you know, not an extremely common practice. So if one is worried, but maybe this is the high road, maybe I should follow, be following the high road. Well, not if it doesn't work. But if this is one that draws you, and that's the primary criterion, if it draws you, if you feel you can do it, and this is the blockage, here's what I would suggest. Over time, it will, it will serve you well, because that's what we're here to do, serve you well. Uh, it will serve you well to develop the skill to be able to do this practice with the eyes open, at least partially open. But how, if it's kind of annoying, irritating, or maybe that's too strong a word, just distracting or feels uncomfortable to have the eyes open, here's what I would suggest. For a couple of reasons, Try doing this during the final session or two before you go to bed. Keep the lights off. And with the, with the dark room, or mostly dark room, then have the eyes open. You'll probably find that's little, if any, problem at all. Okay? And, don't worry, and 
have you, have you broken something? Have you, has, is this violating what Padmasambhava said? Well, bear in mind, in Tibet, until very recently, they didn't have electricity. So the monks pretty much, and the monks didn't have much money. So kerosene is also a fairly recent advent uh, in Tibet. And so by the, this is really an interesting lifestyle. Uh, when I was re- re- receiving the life story of Geshe Raptan, what was it like to be a monk in a monastic university in Tibet in 1940? Before the Chinese came in, where there was hardly any influence by the modern West, very, very little. And what was it like to be there? Well, one thing is when the, when the sun goes down, it's dark. <laughs> it's dark. The monks, no electricity, of course, but the monks, unless they're rich monks, they don't have enough money to go buy kerosene or buy candles or anything like that. They're sitting in the dark. As soon as it goes dark, you're in the dark. So did Padmasambhava say, oh, by the way, you can't do this as soon as the sun goes down? Nope. So you can do completely exactly as Padmasambhava suggested, but in a dark room. No problem. And more than one of you have found that when you're coming to the end of the day and you would really like to get a good night's sleep, it's not, not at all uncommon that if during the last two, couple of hours before going to bed, if you practice settling the mind, many but not all people find, in doing that, it so arouses the clarity and the vividness and kind of the the juice of the mind, hard to fall asleep. Because you put your head down and you... <laughs> you can't turn it off. You, you, know, you can't find the off switch. And so mindfulness of breathing can be good. But one interesting thing is the awareness of awareness. Since it's so radically not conceptual, just releasing concepts just instantly, a lot of people have found that practicing awareness of awareness for the last session or two before bed, it brings out this inner stillness it's clear, but it's not agitating. It's not effervescent. It's still, but just like a quiet light, like, a, like an unflickering flame. No agitation. And then slip right into sleep. And you may be then one of those people who just falls asleep consciously and goes from non-REM sleep right into a lucid dream. So, that's a long answer. But the short answer would be, if on occasion you just want to do it with the eyes closed, go ahead and do it. Just go ahead and have the eyes closed, if it's helpful. But gradually, at your own pace, develop the skill to be able to do it with the eyes open. And the segue there is do it eyes open in a dark room. Okay? You're welcome. Yeah. Yes, Ilsa. Thank you. I would like to share an experience. Oh, good. Uh, this is uh, about about dreaming, ah. not dreaming. Dreaming and not dreaming. Uh-huh. Yes. Um, this afternoon, I had a very nice nap. I really had a good nap. Uh-huh. And I had a dream. And the last few, few days, not every day, I had also dreams. And these dreams are sweet. They the dreams are, are sweet. Sweet. They uh-huh. are easygoing. Pleasant colors, nice uh, smells, just pleasant, pleasant dreams. Yeah. No agitation. Yeah. So this afternoon, too, it it faded. I didn't write it down right away. So I got up and um, I thought, gosh, this is exactly like my life now. I can't quite hear. This, this is, is this dream is exactly like my life now. I, I can't understand. 
this is like your life now. Yes, I was thinking if that's a dream sign, then you just have to have the dream sign all day while you're here. That's right. <laughs> it uh, was really amazing. And I thought, well, so I walk here and I am dreaming. You know, I am in a dream. Well, pleasant. Uh, what, what if I wake up at this point? At the moment, I was there. What if I wake up? It, it was kind of a thinking. It was a question I asked myself. And I thought, if you can hold the microphone a bit closer. Oh, sorry. Yes. It was a question I asked myself. What, what, uh, what if I wake up from right. my dreaming existence in my room in real life? Right. And. Uh, uh, all of a sudden, I, I realized two ways. You realized? Two, two ways. Two, two ways. Two ways, yes. yes. The one way was when I was young, I was afraid of dying, very, very afraid mm -hmm. for, for a few months in a row. And uh, when my second child was born in childbirth, when he came out, mm -hmm. the fear was gone. The fear was gone. Aha. The fear was gone. How interesting. And it, it was not, not a, a light in the sense of a, a great light, but a quiet light. Mm -hmm. And uh, I thought, well, there is no reason whatsoever for anxiety because it is so different from being pregnant to being having a child that is born, it's mm -hmm. so different. Mm -hmm. There is no way you can imagine it. You can as well stop worrying. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I, I really stopped, it was, it, the fear was over. Mm -hmm. And now today, <clears throat> I realize these two ways that on my fear was then that everything would stop, yeah. that, you know, all my senses stop. Mm -hmm. I, I just no longer dare. Yeah. I thought that this must be it's terrible. Uh, and but now I'm I'm aware of another of another way, which is somehow uh, uh, yeah. That, that something continues, right? Mm -hmm. So awareness continues, awareness right. continues, but it is an awareness that is totally depersonalized. So everything indeed dies when I really die. Mm -hmm. I mean, not just in the room, but when, mm -hmm. it's, when it happens. Mm -hmm. Then all of my historical self is gone, but this awareness will somehow continue. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting point here in terms of the Buddhist tradition, uh, in multiple traditions within Buddhism, that the continuity of awareness beyond the death of this body doesn't instantly become amnesiac, does not instantly become devoid of all memory. There's indications of this in some very clearly authenticated uh, near-death and out-of-body experiences, the most 
compelling one that I know of. This one I mentioned earlier of this woman, Pam Reynolds, who was brain dead for some hours and had the out-of-body experience. But what I found so interesting there is she, when she reported on this something like, what was it? It was years later, about 16 years later, I saw her interviewed about her experience uh, by the National Geographic Society, which is not a New Age society, right? Old society. And they interviewed her. And this was something like 16 years or so after the experience. And she said these remain some of the most vivid memories she has from her whole life, the out-of-body experience of seeing, seeing the operating room, the drill, the sound of the drill. It, the pitch was D. And observing, observing the physician, observing, hearing and understanding voices and correctly understanding, because that's what makes it interesting. If you're just having a hallucination, then who cares? But everything she said actually turned out to be true. When she was brain dead, her eyes taped shut, her ears blocked, but she was seeing in color. She was hearing a pitch that she, as a professional musician, could recognize, because she was pitch perfect. A musician, she recognized it was a natural D. And, of course, understanding English language. So she was essentially dead. And the physicians said, because this was the operating procedure, they made her as dead as you can make a person and still have a chance of bringing them back. And that's what they did. The operation obviously was successful. But one can say, she, from a Buddhist perspective, one would say, I would say, she slipped into the bardo. And then they pulled her back. And, and now, so that's, that's a, an informed speculation. I don't know what else it could possibly be. But if we go to the classic teachings on the bardo, and you find them in the Pali Canon, in, in, in the, in, so in Theravada Buddhism, they are there from the teachings of the Buddha himself, and of course fully elaborated in the Tibetan tradition. The assertion here is that during the initial phase of the bardo, after your death, you have clear recollection of the person you were. And you can see things as if you were, well, as if you are, were, because you are a disembodied spirit, but you see things, you hear things, like this woman did when she was brain dead. And so it's as if you're still the same person. Now, how could this be? Well, if your memories are actually stored in the brain, this can't be. And this all has to be false. Has to be false. But the empirical evidence is there. 2,500 years of Buddhist experience, I'm not willing to discount as just one massive psychotic episode. I just think that's irrational. So I, I, for myself, I just must take this experience seriously because I know the Buddhist tradition now to some extent. The assertion here is that you do have that recollection and that sense of being that same person for some time. And you may witness your own funeral. You may witness the people you know. You may drop in on them. And you can move in this bardo with the speed of thought. You're not limited by the speed of sound or speed of light. And so, but it's still a sense of that continuity of your earlier identity. If you're a woman, you're still a woman. If you're an old woman, you're an old woman. If you're a child, you're a child. And then, as the bardo progresses, from its beginning phase, its middle phase, towards end phase, then gradually the locus shifts as one was attending to the past, and in some, in some cases, it takes a little while for you to recognize you're dead. And that can be quite startling, because you don't, in, in not all cases, do you feel dead. Because here you are, you're seeing, you're hearing, and so forth, you're moving here, and the odd thing is everybody's ignoring you. And that's very unsettling. You're wondering, why is everybody giving me the cold shoulder? Right? And then, it, sooner or later, it dawns on you, they're ignoring me because they can't see me, and they can't see me because I'm a ghost. <laughs> I'm dead. I'm a bardo being. And that can come as something of a shock. But if you're prepared for it, not much of a shock. And then, 
this flow of experience continues. And almost like a searchlight that was pointed towards the past, where was I, what's left from where I was, then the searchlight more turns towards the present and towards the future, where am I going? And as one progresses through the bardo, then it's then as if the cloak of amnesia gradually settles in. The cloak, I'm using a metaphor, like the cloak of amnesia, gradually settles in, and one is more oriented to the future, the future, the future, then a new birth takes place, and that's where the amnesia really hits. So what is continuous through all of that is the flow of experience. Exactly right. But the flow of experience is that in which memories and the sense of personal identity are embedded. So memories are not embedded in chemicals. Chemicals are embedded in chemicals. Electricity is embedded in chemicals. Memories are not. And even the notion of information is a very interesting one. And now what we're going to end, oh, we're going to end basically in 60 seconds. When we speak of computers having information, my computer has a lot of information. Dozens of volumes of Tibetan books are in my computer. So there's a lot of information in there. But if you've got a microscope and look at all the silicon chips and all the electrons and so forth, are you going to find any Tibetan texts? Are you going to find any information at all? And the answer is no, you're going to find a bunch of chemicals and electricity. You look at it objectively, there's no information at all. There is information, why? Because somebody put it in there and I know how to retrieve it. The information is there relative to someone who put it in and takes it out. Likewise, there's information in the brain because there's consciousness, but there's no information in the brain independent of consciousness. So the information carries on. A sense of identity carries on for a while, it dissipates, and eventually one takes on a new identity. So there we are. Dinner time. Thank you for the tea the T formation, and uh, see you tomorrow morning.